Welcome to episode 42 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's longest running open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we are back from a slightly longer three-week hiatus to get back on track with everyone's gas addiction. Leading us off this week is our most recent world traveler, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Where did you go and how was the weather, Theo? I went to Vietnam expecting a nice sunny beach holiday and ended up with rain, a bit more rain, more rain, and then torrential rain. So um, didn't quite work out the plan. But welcome back. I'm glad you had fun in the rain. Next, the man who lives in a state with no tax on gas ranges is Mr. Anthony Rue. Do you have a strong preference for the heat source of your cooking appliances, Anthony? Actually, in my commercial kitchen, it's all induction. That's the third kind. It is. And finally, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, a man who has spent the last week trying to understand his 1099K tax form from eBay is Mr. Paul Reibel. Is there anything more eBay can do to discourage people from wanting to sell on eBay? I have, I've been really unhappy with eBay lately, but earlier today I sold an Argus V100 camera that had been on my shelf for upwards toward four years. So I'm, I'm very hopeful about it now. So you're having a proactive Camerosity miracle. I am, I am, and I added, I, 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 I attribute it all to this episode. This week, I am excited to talk about some cameras that almost never get mentioned on film podcasts. We've talked about Japanese and German cameras. We've talked about German and British cameras, even some from Italy, France, and Czechoslovakia. But today's episode, we're going to talk about cameras from the US of A. With us are two special guests, both members of the Argus Collectors Group. First up is Phil Sterrett. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you. Glad to be here. Phil's even wearing an Argus t-shirt. Very 1, cool. 1,000 words on the subject of Argus. You want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I live in Denver, Colorado. I'm a retired software engineer, and um, I am an Argus addict. All right. Also is Mike Reitzma. Mike is also a big collector of Argus cameras and actually helped me on a recent review of the Argus SLR. Uh, welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Mike. I'm a retired uh, engineer uh, living here in the periphery of uh, Silicon Valley and got started back in about 1997 collecting uh, Argus uh, with the help of Bob Kelly and Phil. I am Argy Eyes on, speaking of eBay, I'm Argy Eyes on eBay and all the proceeds from those sales go to the Argus Museum. And Mike, I want to thank you for uh, providing the documentation of many cameras that, or several cameras at least that I've sold on Argy Eyes. And uh, have you know that I do contribute to your website through PayPal whenever I do yep, that. I do. I really appreciate it. That really does help. I mean, I say it every time I, I get a donation, but 100% of that money goes back in. Uh, knowing Paul, the money definitely goes out much faster than it comes in, but certainly uh, that helps pay for hosting, all the other stuff that I do, even return shipping. I just pay straight out of my PayPal account. So I appreciate it. We've got a few people in the waiting room. So I'm going to open up the doors and let them in. All right. I see some returning callers, some of my favorite people ever to talk to. First is another fan of American-made cameras, Mr. Dan Houseman. Dan, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Dan isn't specifically an Argus collector, but um, I know that you're a huge fan of a lot of the different brands. You loaned me books on um, the um, the Carden, Peter Carden's biography. You've loaned yeah. me books on on a variety of other subjects too. So uh, Dan has kind of a nice rounded knowledge level of uh, a bunch of different things. I, I see Bob Rodoloni, who is a collector of not American cameras, but it's always fun to talk to Bob. Welcome back, Bob. Thank you. I see Eric Rissi. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks. I've been collecting cameras for oh, about 10 years now. Wasn't really into photography and cameras too much before that. I mean, it was kind of a back burner hobby that, you know, sounded, hey, it'd be nice to get into that someday, but somehow I just never did it until I ran across a copy of the McEwen's book at a thrift store. And I've kind of been hooked ever since. So I Pat mostly Casey. collect American stuff. Well, that's cool. That's what we're open to talk about today. Pat Casey, uh, yes. welcome to the show, Pat. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, my name is Pat Casey. I've uh, been a photographer forever. Got into it when I was 13. My dad was into it. Uh, I've sort of been collecting ever since then, which was back in the 20th century. I remember way back when I was a kid, there was a, a barrel at a camera store with cameras for 25 cents a piece. So that's when I guess I started my collection. I got a baby brownie. Uh, and uh, and so I've just, I've, I've long found Argus is interesting. I'm a little more interested in Kodak. But, but I've been fascinated by the American camera industry, how in the 40s and 50s, all sorts of high-tech stuff. And then after that, it was mainly brownies and Instamatic. So I'm an American camera guy, uh, although not so much Argus. <laughs> That's fine. No, no problem here. And Greg. Greg, welcome to the show. Yep. My name is Greg McCreesh. I'm a retired U.S. Navy photographer, and uh, I've been collecting cameras for about 35 years now. I really enjoy your show. So have you listened uh, to other episodes then, it sounds like? Yeah, I've listened to about 20 of them. I'm playing catch up, trying to get get all the ones I've missed in between. I listened to it driving back and forth to work, but um, I, I enjoy listening to the show and everything you guys talk about. Well, it's glad to hear. It's good feedback for us. We definitely appreciate it because yeah, we do this for fun. So, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned uh, American cameras. You know, there's there's so much here. A lot of times people talk about gas and people end up buying stuff as a result of hearing us talk about stuff on the show. So maybe we'll do some people a favor and at least some of the cameras we talk about might not actually cost that much money. We might find some bargains out there of things to discuss. You know, Kodak obviously is is probably the biggest producer of American-made cameras, but I feel like Kodak, we could spend a whole show or multiple whole shows talking on that. So we're going to at least make an attempt to avoid the big K and, and stick with uh, some of these other brands. I mean, Argus is certainly probably the biggest, like in terms of manufacturing of cameras. Uh, they made quite a number of good ones, but there's certainly some other great cameras out there. Uh, I saw Pat held up his uh, Ansco automatic reflex. I have one too. You know, this is a neat three by or a six by six twin lens reflex that came out in the late forties. There were a lot of cameras that were produced by American companies in as a result of a lack of being able to get stuff from Germany. So, you know, if you were a fan of the Roloflex in, you know, 47, 48, you couldn't get them. So some of the American companies had to step up and, and make some higher end models. So, uh, you know, Ansco produced that thing. Kodak had their reflex model. Um, but that doesn't mean that some of the other models weren't interesting too. So, you know, thinking of Argus, Argus is similar to another Michigan-based camera company, Detrola, in that they both started producing radios. Uh, I think radios were a, a big kind of hobby, I guess, in, in the 1930s, the Great Depression. Not a lot of people had money, but, you know, a lot of radio shows were getting popular. People, you know, that was their entertainment. You know, they didn't have televisions. They didn't go out to the theater often because they couldn't afford it. So a lot of people were buying radios. And, you know, you buy radio, once you have one, you don't need to buy another one again. So um, my understanding of the story, perhaps Phil or Mike, you could, you know, steer me if I get something wrong here, but uh, both Argus and Detrola were pretty respect. Well, Argus was originally IRC, 
Do I have that right? International Radio. Okay. So yeah. uh, Interna- International Radio Corporation made some pretty good radios. They were very good at producing cameras made out of Bakelite, which is a, a you know an early type of plastic. It was ideal for electronics in that it didn't conduct electricity. So when you had a, a cabinet, you know, you could form it out of wood, but that obviously took a skilled carpenter or woods, woodsman, you know, to be able to, to carve that, or they could make it out of Bakelite. And uh, I think that that sort of transitioned probably to, to cameras. You know, I don't know, maybe one of you guys could, could help me understand a little bit better. Was there any attempt to produce anything else? Like what's, what was the link between radios and cameras? Do either of you guys know? Yeah, I named Charles Vershure. He was the guy who started international radio and uh, they were looking for a, something to smooth out the sales cycle. Radios sold well in the fall and winter and poorly in the spring and summer. And he uh, was enamored with the Leica and figured with their success in making plastic body cameras or radios, uh, he figured they could do the same thing and reduce the price of cameras and make a cheap 35 millimeter that was also good and capitalize on the popularity of Kodachrome. Thus begat the Argus A. So the Argus A, Paul's holding one up there. I know that that's probably one we, we all have. We've seen a lot of them. They have a very familiar shape that was actually copied by a lot of different companies. The early Detrolas had a similar shape. You know, Detrola used roll film, whereas the Argus used 35 millimeter. But the Bakelite body was something that they were good at making. They found a way to use what they knew how to do to make something. So you said that Charles was enamored with the Leica. And now obviously the Argus A wasn't quite as high spec, but you said it made pretty good images. I've shot one before and, you know, I, I tend to agree. They, they weren't that bad. In fact, they even made a model, I believe, uh, that had a, a German lens on it. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Phil, Phil, I think you're the expert on that. The Model B, I think Mike must be referring to, right? That was, that was, or was it a French lens, right? Was you, it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those mystery cameras that um, they, they made about a thousand of them and you see two or three different variants and the lens says France and the shutter says Germany and nobody knows anything. And uh, uh, so... It's, uh, but yes, it, it was it was the first first but not the last camera to use imported parts. That yeah. argued. In fact, Phil, you have to think that a camera made at the on the eve of World War II with a lens made in France and a shutter made in Germany is going to be rather short lived. Yes. Also, I think your your theory, Phil, was that the uh, Argus Model B was a was a test market device. You want to elaborate on that? You know, everything we've seen suggests a thousand of them out there. And that feels like a pretty typical first production run, you know, stick your toe in the water and then they, you know, disappeared from the scene. So, yeah, yeah, I think they they had a a good idea in 38 and by, you know, 39 or whatever that was uh, maybe getting the years wrong there. But uh, yeah, I guess it was 37. But yeah, it, it just the handwriting was on the wall by the time they got to production and there was no point in going forward. The only the only advertisement for it uh, is from the St. Louis Post Dispatch in September of 1938. That kind of says that the distribution was localized, and uh, the cold test market idea, you know, s- supports that. So let's say someone were to come across an Argus A series. Is there kind of an easier way than others to tell which specific one you have? Is there somewhere you could look on them to know which model you have? Yeah, that's, there's a couple of ways. Um, Almost all of them, um, the model number uh, or the model name um, prepends the serial number. So if, 
except for the Model A, which just says NO period and the serial number. Uh, but that's how you know you have Model A. Uh, the Bs start with B, the A2Bs start with A2B, and so forth. The FA that uh, Theo was, or someone was holding up, um, uh, has no serial number. It just has a date stamp in it. But it's so distinctive that you'd never not know you had an Argus FA. There it is. That's the one you're, that's an FA? That's an FA. That was the last Model A made between 1950 okay. and 51. Because it doesn't have the same uh, Art Deco work on the back that the, yes. the A's did. They transitioned into the international style at that point um, in, in line with, with all leading architecture. And also had the, the flash uh, coupler on the edge, on the on the end. And Mike, is is that the case? They used the Model 76 flash from the Model 75 camera? Yeah, they used the Model 76. There's two variants on the back of that camera. There's a, a silver on white and a white on silver. The uh, thing about that camera is that it was, uh, unlike its immediate predecessors after World War II, it didn't have the uh, incident light meter on the top. And so it kind of looks like an old model, Model A, you know, from 1936 or thereabouts. But uh, it was one of the last uh, Model A types that were produced. Well, I, I've got a pile of them with the extinction meter, but I just happen to like the way this one looks. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> is, it, is a very, it is an attractive camera. Yeah, and, you know, so I just grabbed this one. But the extinction meter is an interesting concept, and, and I guess it worked to a certain extent. But uh, I think this just looks cleaner. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Is that My something favorite. Argus introduced, the extinction meter, or is that something that was already around at that point? It had been around for a number of years, I think, from, from, the, from, the, mid, from the early 30s probably on. The thing that Argus did is that they put a slider on the top of the camera, and as you look through the extinction meter, in previous versions of, of extinction meters, you would get a letter or a number, and then you'd go to a table on the back of the camera, and then that would show you uh, shutter speeds and apertures and so on. Uh, Argus had the slider, so you pointed the slider over at the you know last visible image in the extinction meter, and then you looked on the top of the camera, and it had aligned the shutter speed and aperture uh, with the oh. scale on the top of the camera. So it was a slightly easier to use extinction meter. Yeah, I like Argus's implementation of it. I mean, I've never actually found extinction meters to be helpful, but I liked how they kind of <laughs> use that chart on the top. A lot of companies, um, like I have a Falcon here somewhere, it has a really convoluted disc on the back where you have to like rotate parts depending on the time of the year, what kind of lighting you have, what random leather is po letter has popped up. So yeah, an extinction meter was uh, an, an effective way of being able to tell the difference between what kind of lighting you have for someone who maybe didn't know. My favorite... Argus A series are the F models that have the focusing helix. They can focus down to 15 inches. So, you know, 15 inches on a scale focus camera is pretty difficult to do, but uh, if, if you're good at it, you know, they at least allow a lot more flexibility than the, the non F models do. But um, of course the, uh, when people think of an Argus camera today, they're probably not immediately thinking of the A series without a doubt, their most iconic model would be the C series. Um, the Argus C started in 38 it sold for 35 or 25 bucks i think they came up with that so there were two cameras who wants to tell me the other camera that came out around the same time as the argus c that also sold for 25 bucks perfect speed candid okay who wants to tell me two more cameras that sold <laughs> for about 25 bucks probably the original kodak 35 no or was that more <laughs> no i don't know 
what I was thinking of is the Mercury. So 25 bucks, I think, was the price point, it seems, in the late 30s for what was considered to be a pretty good camera. You know, I think that I read somewhere that that was uh, thought to be like the average weekly salary of, a, of like a middle class family. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, the original Argus C, which I have right here. Um, the op most obvious difference, if you're trying to tell the difference between a C, a C2, and a C3, is this is the only one where there's no dial in between the rangefinder and the lens. So you have these cameras that have um, no coupling between the rangefinder. So you basically have to make your adjustment on the rangefinder, see what it says, and then make an adjustment on the lens. And that also make some unique in that the Argus C is the only camera where the lens actually has distant meters written on the actual lens itself, whereas the other ones don't. The device that Eric uh, is holding uh, or, or has on his camera is a remarkable uh, accessory um, made by a company called Ontora in Los Angeles. And it, it was an aftermarket device that fit on the camera and it forced you to use all the, the controls in the proper sequence. And uh, it, you know, Rube Goldberg liked the Argus C3 when it came out for its Rube Goldberg aspects. When he saw this, he just gazed in slack-jawed admiration. <laughs> You've outdone me. Yeah, it basically, it, it, it turns the, it converts the camera to having the uh, double exposure prevention. So it's linked to the cocking lever and the wine knob and the little release for the wind and kind of blocks you from winding the camera if you haven't fired off a shot yet. And then the inter most interesting thing is there's a little window on there that tells you what the next step was. So it'll say <laughs> wind film or cock shutter. So that little message there changes and tells you what the next step is. But it's a very rare accessory. This is the only one I've ever run across. And I know uh, one big collector in Michigan was Gary Stop, And he was always hounding me to sell him this because he didn't have one. So Eric's just sh holding up something that I don't even know if I could describe it. We'll have to get a picture of that and put it in the show notes. But uh, I, yeah, Rube Goldberg definitely sounds like a good summary. Yeah, as if the C3 didn't already have enough external parts, this adds yeah. a whole other level yeah. too. So a lot of people, so, I mean, I think the most obvious criticism of the C3 is, is, you know, poor ergonomics. I mean, the, the camera's called the brick for a very good reason. I want to ask Anthony a question though, because Argus's were one of the cameras where until recently he had never even so much as held. And Paul essentially force fed him a C3 and said, um, why don't you go ahead and shoot this? So when we did our desert Island episode what we're the idea that the episode was we had to pick three cameras we would want to be stuck with on a desert island and i picked the argus c3 as one of my three for its ruggedness and you know distinct operation and and i remember anthony is like are you sure you know so um so describe to us like your experience on that and like maybe how your thoughts are now or maybe they're exactly this as you expected them to be no i was actually i mean i thought it outperformed what i thought it would do you know i mean obviously it has its quirks and, you know, sort of like some of the Kodaks of the similar era where you have to remember certain sequences to make things work properly. Uh, I was always having to sort of stop and think, okay, do I press this to advance it? It's kind of tripped me up a few times. But uh, I got to say that when I developed those negatives, 
uh, it really was much better than I would have considered it to be. And I think for me, you know, in addition to what Anthony just said, I mean, the images are pretty good. You know, the 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 base Centaur lens is, is, is very solid. But then you also have the option of the Sandmar lenses, which were Enowork German lenses. So you can effectively turn the Argus into a German lens camera. And and I actually really, really love shooting mine with a 35 millimeter Sandmar. And, and, uh, and Paul, Paul sent me another lens, but now I just have to go back and rewatch your video to figure out how to change the lens. <laughs> That's a, a common complaint too. People say that they hate changing lenses on the Argus and it certainly is a little bit more complicated than you're typically used to, but really it's the rangefinder coupling. That's the, the problem. I mean, really the, the lens mount on the Argus is just a screw mount. So, you know, physically putting the lens on is easy, but getting the rangefinder coupled does require a couple extra steps. But yeah, Anthony is right. I have a video on my site for my C-series review where I show how it's done. And, it, you know, there's so many things with photography, with vintage cameras, you know, with Leicas, you got bottom loaders, you know, I mean, that turns off the bottom loading of a Leica turns off a lot of people, but there's still so many people who love using them. And when you get used to shooting a Leica, you just get used to the bottom loading and you have to load a Leica every single time you want to use it. Whereas with an Argus, you only need to mess with the lens when you actually want to change it. So unless you're changing the lenses all the time, it's really not that big of a deal, but yeah, their operation honestly is not that bad. We talked in our last episode on the contacts episode, how there's a specific way you got to hold the camera the context grip well there's sort of an argus grip too so that you guys can get me to shut up does anybody want to explain what the argus grip is well the main uh pitfall on the argus is the little cocking lever here so as you fire the shutter that moves and if your finger is in the way it's going to impede the shutter and you're going to get much longer exposure than you planned on so if it hits your finger while it's firing, it's going to screw yeah. up the exposure. You can take so, this off and recock it in a different position. Normally, it sticks out to the side where it's really easy to do that. So on this camera, it's been rotated about 90 degrees. So you're a little less likely to hit that accidentally. I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask you about it. But yeah, um, what, our, what Eric's talking about is when you look at an Argus, the cocking lever, there's a nut. I think it's actually reverse threaded that I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But if you back off the nut, ever so slightly, you can rotate the lever 90 or 180 degrees. I usually point them completely towards the lens, like opposite of how they're supposed to be. And then you just tighten that nut and then the lever works exactly how it always does, except it's facing towards the lens instead of away from the lens and it's less likely to hit your finger. So um, I always get a kick out of when I see cameras for sale on eBay where that's already been done. It's like, that tells me the person who used it probably used it a lot. So if you, if you use an Argus C though, does it transport you to Hogwarts? So Theo's talking about the Matchmatic. I, I'm not a big Harry Potter fan, but uh, I don't know the name of the character, the redhead kid. I'm, I'm losing credibility here. With oh, the, there you go. <laughs> he used one of these, and I don't know. The filmmakers must have thought uh, it looks like something from a, a mythical land. So um, the Matchmatic was a later model that came with a black and tan body covering. The later Arguses, they had the Matchmatic and the, they called it the C3 Standard. They came out in 58. They were one of the last models made. They revised the lens and they went with an exposure system where you'd get a number on the included meter and whatever it would point to, you would just match it with numbers, both on the shutter speed dial and the aperture or the, the diaphragm ring, I should say. And as long as it matched what the meter was telling you, you'd get proper exposure. So not quite auto exposure, but 
a simplified version that that worked. Those numbers were actually based on the the EVS system or LVS, such that if you added the two numbers together, uh, you could use an LVS that uh, was the sum of those numbers. I'm, I'm just explaining it backwards, but that's how it related to yeah. the LVS. So, so the light meter is basically giving you a standard light value, and then you're just splitting it between those two dials, essentially. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah, and it the light meter that came with it actually has separate sale, scales that match the, the lens and shutter speed. Yep. So you don't have to do any convolutions. But if you had a, a LVS or EVS meter that you just loved, you could use it with a little training. Minolta used a very similar system on the original autocords where you had to add the numbers together. Uh, they did that on their SR series SLRs as well, too. So that wasn't even something unique to Argus. It was pretty common to use that kind of system for exposure metering. And for that era, it didn't seem weird. Like that was actually considered pretty pretty modern, you know, for them. So for a camera that retained a brick-like shape as long as it did, you know, it, they did keep up with the times in some regards, you know, they added a more advanced lens coating to the lens over the years. They added a, a accessory shoe. The earlier models don't have that. They revised the cosmetics slightly. Let's say if I wanted to be like a completist and I wanted every single Argus C-series ever made, and I had an unlimited budget. What's the rarest C-Series uh, that all collectors want to have? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. There's some good candidates. Of course, the, the earliest one, the Model C, they actually made it with a two-range shutter. And there's a small switch just below the caulking lever that is marked F and S and switches between the two ranges. Probably made about 1,500 or so of those. And it was so problematic that Anyone that was sent back for repair was immediately replaced by a newer one. So they are quite hard to find. Was that switch marked FS? Yes. So it's a fast, slow. Exactly. Bill, now you have a, a camera that looks as though it might be a prototype camera. Describe describe that, which would even, even predate the FS model. It is an early, it, it does look like an early model of the FS and... Um, Notably, the lens, which is uh, has a distinctly different um, scale on it, but it's missing a couple of small parts. I, I actually donated that to the Argus Museum, so I'm hoping they will feature that prominently someday in their displays. But yes, it was a, a no provenance whatsoever, but uh, um, anybody with sharp eyes could see it was something different, and I've never seen one like it. Where, where did that come from, uh, Phil, that camera? A friend of Bob Kelly's found it at a yard sale in Washington. Yeah, of all places. Yeah, yeah. And so, but it definitely um, has the look of something that kicked around a back room in a development lab or something. You yeah. can see little extra screw holes drilled into it, and the markings on the lens are primitive. Uh, it just looks like something that was hacked together very early in the development of the camera. It's it's really cool. Yeah, I know they made a few of them with metric scales on them. Um, very few. Very, yeah, very. How few. do we? How many do we know with metric scale? Uh, four or five. Four. Yeah. Oh wow. There's like uh, four four C twos and a C three. Yeah. But they and they kind of fall in a fairly close serial number range. It's also possible that was simply sold as a as an accessory. As a, a, you know, pop the old scale off and pop the new one on if you wanted it for you know yeah. sixty seven cents at your local artist repairman. Um, yeah. Well, in any case, they didn't sell very many, even if they were an accessory. What about the Minka version? 
Uh, now that was yeah. that really was sold in England, right, Phil? That's right. 1939, they sold uh, a line of Arguses, including the A2B and the A2F and the Fotar exposure meter and the C2 and the C3. But there was already a line of cameras labeled Argus in Britain. Mm -hmm. So due to copyright restrictions, they came up with the name Minca, M-I-N-C-A, for miniature camera. And the only place that name occurred on the C2 and C3 was instead of saying Argus Centaur on the front of the lens, it said Minca Centaur. And that's how you distinguish them. And, oh, wow. Yeah. Find one of those and give me a call and uh, I'll make you three-figure <laughs> so offer for sure. <laughs> Yeah. So I hear, you know, Arguses are so easy to find even still in the United States. I mean, they were super common here, but a apart from those rare Minkas, were they ever exported as Arguses anywhere else? Because you hear like UK based collectors, Theo's in Australia and, you know, Theo, how often do Arguses show up down by you? How very, very, very rarely. Right. And when they do, it's something like this. It's just something Phil just said that there was the UK uh, company already using the name Argus. So I'm just wondering if this was actually even American in that case. I've got a Argus 75 here. No, that's a genuine Argus. That's a real Argus. Yeah, it is, but there, there were Argus 75s made in Australia. And yes. they, they say, on the lens rim, it will say made in Australia. <laughs> it does too. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's a rare Australian Argus 75. There you go. There are several variants there. Some have red knobs. There was a variance that took super slides, for example. You put a mask into the frame finder and into the film plane, and it would take super slides. And okay. then one with the red advanced knob. Those are uncommon. That's a good one. Oh, cool. I'm quite happy to have that then. Well, there you go, Theo. It's a Camerosity miracle. I've been it's... able to buy uh, uh, C3s from India. So, again, uh, I'm probably pre-war. So, again, uh, you know, uh, British... Uh, Dominion. So um, a few minutes ago, Dan Houseman was holding up a black, it looked like a C4R, possibly C4. Is that a military use are you, that you know of, or is it just they made a few black ones? We don't think so. Phil, comment on the black C4, and then we'll go back to the military. Yeah, those there's uh, eight or nine of those that have showed up. We asked when I was interviewing Argus employees, they uh, to a man, they had never heard of it, um, couldn't tell me a thing about it. And finally, a few years ago, uh, an ex-employee came along that did tell us that uh, they made them, um, and it's a cold, the, the the black metal parts, it's a cold anodized process. And the other thing you find in those is that the uh, a lot of the pieces of the shutter um, mechanism are copper. He said they were made that way, both techniques to uh, uh, improve um, moisture proofing uh, capabilities. And they did have a military contract in mind. And the, the Argus employees said that he had seen ones with military contract numbers or something, but we have never seen any of those. There's a military uh, training spec or repair spec, which is uh, labeled C3, but it doesn't indicate that the camera itself was manufactured specifically to a military spec with military coloring. Now, the color camera from pre-war, which was a metal body, kind of a streamlined metal body uh, leaf shutter camera uh, that was introduced in like 38 or thereabouts. It came in a couple of variants and two of those are shown in the 1943 annual report uh, in a black anodized version. And those showed up, interestingly enough, at a Chicago photo fair, Chicago 
exposition for manufacturers in 1978 and it were said, I think, to be then shipped to uh, Interphoto or one of the successor companies of, of Argus. And uh, those cameras have never been found, but we do have pictures of them. And they were, they were identified uh, as specifically in the annual report as a military versions of it, along with other military products made at that time. So there may be somewhere in the world two black Argus color cameras that were in fact made for the United States Army or uh, or perhaps the Navy at that time, but they're gone now. Yeah. One thing that I always struck me as kind of interesting, you know, I'm in Indiana, so I'm just south of, of Michigan. And in all the times that I've done research on Argus cameras, I, I keep coming back to like old newsletters from the Argus company. They had a, a company magazine called Argus Eyes. And I flipped through quite a few of them. The Ann Arbor Library has a bunch of them on their website. You can just read through them. And one thing that I thought was interesting was how much of involved in the community Argus was, you know, they had like sports teams and basketball teams and they'd post pictures of their employees, like a a new baby would be born and they posted in the company newsletter. Can either of you guys speak to like how big of a role Argus was in that whole area of the state. I mean, you know, Michigan's known for Detroit automobiles, but outside of Detroit, you know, Argus was the king of Ann Arbor, right? It couldn't have a tremendous effect. Well, in the Ann Arbor area, you know, the Ann Arbor is divided between the college half and the old town half. And in the old town half, uh, uh, it was a significant member of the community, but at the very most pre-war you're talking about 600 or 800 employees. So the full extent of its, uh, of its impact was limited by simply by the number of employees. Okay. But you're absolutely right, Mike, that if you look at those RGIs, they start about, oh, the second or, second or so uh, year of uh, military production, about 19, late 41, I think, uh, early 42. And they follow all the comings and goings of folks that uh, joined the service, uh, people that were coming back from the service, uh, people who had babies, people who got married, people who met one another at Argus and got married. Every department had its own little blurb about the comings and goings within their department. Of course, new products would be featured from time to time. All these sports activities, you know, they had uh, they had a, their Argus aircraft, for example, and an Argus flying club, and they had Argus basketball team, Argus softball leagues, Argus, Argus golf tournament. They had Argus scholarships for kids of Argus employees. They had a huge uh, Argus Christmas party, you know, at a local theater every year. They were, had one of the first companies to have health insurance as a standard benefit and a profit sharing retirement program of all things in like 1939. So they were a really progressive company. And among the lucky people that did work at Argus, that generated a lot of loyalty and they had a tremendous influence for, for many of the reasons that you mentioned. It was yeah. it was a significant and progressive company at that time, but uh, yeah. it didn't, wasn't one impacted people beyond four or 500 people that worked at the okay. company. I mean, I know none of that has any impact on the usability or the images you get from a camera, but being from the United States, like most of us here are, you know, there's so many great cameras from Germany. There's so many great cameras from Japan. And there's so many collectors that just completely dismiss American cameras and I just love hearing those kinds of stories. I love the history. You know, anybody who's been to my website, I spend just as much time talking about the history of a camera as I do using it. And and those kinds of stories just make me just super fascinated about the history of Argus and all the products that they made. Transitioning off the C-Series, though, even though they're probably the most famous 
cameras. Um, just just I don't... before we jump onto that, Mike, can I ask a yeah. quick question? The name Argus, what is that actually derived from? Where did the name actually come from? There's a mythological character that was supposed to guard the wives of Zeus, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was uh, oh, associated with another mythological character named Eo. And supposedly this uh, character had 100 eyes and uh, they were all remained open constantly. And so this enabled this Argus character to uh, maintain vigilance over uh, the wives of, of Zeus. And the idea was that uh, with these the hundred eyes that never closed was comparable to the, you know, hundreds of thousands of eyes of the Argus camera that never closed. Oh, thank you. That, that's, uh, I've always wondered that. That's a good question, though. I actually never heard that either. But uh, that makes sense why their newsletter was called Argus Eyes then. One thing that, find, that I find strange about like the later Argus cameras is within a relatively short period of time, you know, they obviously wanted to improve upon the C3 and released follow-up models. So they added new features, came up with new designs. And what was really the successor of the C3? Was it the C4 or was it the C33? These are two cameras. I'll have pictures of them in the show notes that came out roughly around the same time. But as you can see, they look very different. And one of them kind of, the C33 retains the very boxy, you know, you drop this on your toe, you're going to be hurting. But it has, this, you know, the screw mount lens with the coupled ring. It's got this bizarro protruding exposure meter. Um, it's extraordinarily heavy. It's got a bottom folding film door. It uses the same kind of flash. But I got to tell you, everything I like about the C3s, I just do not <laughs> like using this thing because it's, it's, it takes the the brick feel to like the max. So was there like a, a maybe a, a disagreement at Argus management about which direction to go with this smooth, almost Leica shaped, feels good in your hands. It's got an interchangeable lens mount versus yet. Hey, let's make more bricks. There was actually, Mike, there was the intermediate camera and Phil can comment on this. It was C21 that was uh, supposed to be introduced uh, right at the end of, of uh, World War II, if I'm not mistaken, and didn't get introduced until about 1947. And what it was, it was like a brick, but with this streamlined contours, uh, nice metal body, not Bakelite body, and with a newly designed shutter. I think Clint Harris designed that initial shutter. That shutter then propagated into the C4 and the C44, but it didn't have truly interchangeable lenses. You could remove the lens uh, but and put it on, say, a companion enlarger, but it didn't couple to, the, uh, it was a rangefinderless camera. It had a very nice uh, viewfinder with projected frame on it that was said to be developed during World War II. Is that the one they sometimes call the Mark Finder? Mark Finder. And that yep. camera is really the origin of the C4. And from say the end of World War II until even 1964, those two lines developed, uh, kind of were maintained in parallel. The C4, the, the Mark Finder to the C4 to the C44, and then the various variants of the C3, uh, which they tried to quit making, but you know because of demand and the vagaries of, uh, of the business, they ended up making until 1964. Uh, you know, long past the heyday of the company. Paul, I think you have a ton of those Mark Finders, don't you? The 21s? I think there are a number of them in a tub. In a tub, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll hype up the Mark Finders as the... As, hey, uh, I appreciate that. Now, now the Mark Finders are cool. The Mark Finders are cool. 
because they had a very peculiar mechanism for caulking that shutter. The shutter was very hard to caulk and they relied on the film sprocket to caulk the shutter. But it took so much force that you ended up ripping the film out. And so around serial number 20,000, they changed the design. So the, the film advanced rather than the film sprocket caught the shutter. Okay. So the cool thing is to find one of these early mark finders with the serial number under 20,000, which have been modified. You can send them back to the factory. Argus always had this really great return to the factory policy in a big repair facility. And they would turn things around and concoct things for people that had old cameras, even obsolete cameras. You could send in a mark finder and they would change it to the new design that didn't tear up the film because the sprocket engaged the caulking of the shutter. And what they would do when they did that is that they would, they would prepend or postpend, Phil, maybe you can tell me, they would stamp the letter S onto the serial number. So if you had serial number 000, 20,000, it would be serial number 00020,000S standing for service so that you would know that that camera would be returned to the factory and then modified to update the design. So Paul, dig through your bins and look for S modified. Uh, I will, I'll be on that first thing in the morning. In the morning, yeah. yeah. And so I, that's on a- the inside, the later cameras, uh, there was a, they had such trouble with this uh, film being torn up by the camera is that they put a clamp and you see all this in other cameras, they put a clamp that held the film down in proximity to the film sprocket so that it would be more efficient in cocking the shutter. And then of course, after tw- number 20,000, when they changed the design, they didn't need that. So the easy way to tell whether you have an old one or a new one is to look inside, see if there's a film clamp on the inside. If you have a film clamp, it's the old design. Yeah, the mark finders actually, I have almost every Argus uh, 35 millimeter camera they made, but I just don't have one of those. It's just one that never came across to me. Uh, I think they made, what, about 60,000, right, Phil? They're about, so they're relatively uncommon. Paul, another rarity you should look for, that's another camera that was produced in very small numbers with a lens that had uh, both feet and meters in the focusing scale. We've only seen- On a mark finder. Yeah. And- A mark finder. Okay. Very very rare and random. Um, You've got a whole website of of rarities, right, Phil? Why don't you- Run down some of the highlights in that rarities uh, website you have. Can you do that a little bit off the top of your head? Because, uh, you know, collectors should know that there are some valuable and uncommon Argus cameras out there. It's lots of fun. And what leads the the parade in Argus rarities is the mythical white Model A. And one has never shown up in, in real life. But Mike and his wife and an engineer got together and uh, 3D printed uh, a body in white. And Mike, who's an incredible craftsman um, across the board, took um, old uh, parts of a different Argus A and restored them to shining beauty. And it is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. I I mean, it practically makes you not want to find a real Argus A because it would be dull and boring in, in comparison to this. And if you track down that argusinfo.net uh, site and look in the rarities section, that leads the parade on one of the pages, and it's worth a look. Thanks for that, Phil. The, the background on this is if you look <laughs> for the first notice of the Argus Model A is in December 1935. You think the Argus came out in spring of 1936? No, the first notice of the Argus Model A is in December 1935 in the Detroit Free Press. The Detroit Free Press. Uh, mentions as 
does the first add for an Argus uh, Model A, that it would be available in a finish called Ivory and Gold. And this is what Pam and I, thanks Phil for mentioning Pam, she's sitting here next to me beaming yeah. <laughs> at that reference. What we did is we took an old Argus camera uh, of the right vintage, early or mid thirties Argus camera, and we took them to a local uh, plating shop and had, had those parts gold plated because the, the description of that camera was that it was ivory and gold. It was supposed to be a luxury model. And so we, we had them gold plated and then uh, uh, super, we super, then we placed those parts on the 3D printed. Uh, Anubam Patak was the guy that did the 3D printing. He's uh, He works at Google now. He started a company and Google bought it and so on. He did all the drawing of the body for us. And then we had it 3D printed at a place up in wow. San Francisco that he used. Well, and what little literature they had on that model, did they ever announce a price on it? Or There was, I don't think there was a price specifically on the Argus in white and gold because it was only mentioned in one in one advertisement and that was it but there was a brown and gold version that was offered at a premium price i believe it was like 1750 versus 1250 for the initial uh, model a variant let's say you're somebody who likes the idea of the argus's and you're interested in shooting you know one but maybe you just can't wrap your heads around the bricks the c series and maybe you want a range finder so maybe the a series are out um does anybody here have like a recommendation for someone who maybe has never shot an argus but wants something a little bit more modern that is also plentiful and not that expensive to get into the c4 and c44 are quite common easy to find and you know obviously with the c44 you have interchangeable lenses so you have a little more flexibility and focal lengths that's probably my choice too the c4 does not have an interchangeable lens unless you get the c4 geiss which was modified with a completely different lens mount than the c44 otherwise they do look very similar but these are pretty hard to find uh, but yeah I, I agree with you i like the c44s I don't love the lens mount itself, but other than that, it's a really pleasant, nice to use camera. The viewfinder is pretty large. It's got uh, the combined image range finder instead of the two separate windows of the C3. If you get the R version, it has a film advanced lever. They're very easy to spot because they also have a red tip. Okay, yeah, Eric has a very rare lens there. Paul yeah. sold one of those to Ira, yeah. right? Yep. For uh, a pretty penny. That's the one nine yeah. um, yep. lens. But uh, if you can get, if you're looking for a good bargain, I've asked, I've been asked before what my top two underrated value budget American 35 millimeter rangefinder cameras are. And I always recommend the Kodak Signet 35 and the Argus C44 um, or the R. You know, the R is nice because it's got a lever, but the C44 is just as good too. Really snappy, good shutter. Uh, top speed of one three hundred, so it doesn't quite go to one five hundredth. But you know who cares about that? You could put a light meter on it. It's got an. I got the auxiliary viewfinder because I have the wide angle lens on it. I'm a huge fan of wide angle lenses. But I mean, this camera feels solid. You know, it's it doesn't feel cheap. It makes wonderful images. They're fun to use. They're just as flexible, and they have pretty much all the modern features you'd expect from a '50s American rangefinder. Mike, I would have one one further observation on that. So if you're interested in introducing someone to Argus, there's there, we, we forget the metal-bodied Argus uh, TLR cameras, 
if you set one of those things up properly, you know, focus well on the film plane and so on, it will produce exceptionally good images. The 40. Uh, this one is the what we call the Argus model, and I think that might be an even better choice. But there, that's a plastic bottle. Uh, there is a metal-bodied Argus, which was made in kind of in the likeness of the Bakelite uh, Argus uh, TLRs uh, after World War II. And that camera, yeah, Argo there flex. you go. That you go. I have I have seen exceptionally good work out yeah. of that camera. What I was holding up, Argus made two distinct types of twin lens cameras. You have the Argo Flex, which is what Mike was talking about. It's a metal bodied, it's a true twin lens TLR. When you look through the viewfinder, you actually focus through the top lens. And then the smaller, the plastic versions, which is what I call a twin lens box camera. Some right. people call them pseudo TLRs. The difference being that the, the viewing lens is, is not coupled to the focus. So when you look through it, it's just a brilliant viewfinder, like uh, the Soviet Lubitel, the Fotlander, Brilliance, um, Kodak, Duaflex, a bunch of companies made these. So they're good for guest focus, but the viewfinder is very bright. But the Argo Flex, I agree with you. I shot one of these at Niagara Falls in Canada and actually got some really fantastic images on it. Now, Mike, there's a rare variant of that camera. Immediately after World War, well, not immediately, a couple of years after World War II, Argus decided that they were going to put an auto film stop and auto film advance mechanism into that camera. And uh, they tried and could not manufacture the auto film stop feature very well. And so, Phil, how many, how many Argoflex 2s are, are kicking about these days? Uh, less than 10. Um, less than 10. There are some yeah. very, very interesting variants. There's uh, uh, one with a very unusual script uh, Argoflex 2 logo that's up for sale on eBay at a rather handsome price right now. Yeah, $5,000. Only, yeah. only one we know of. Um, yeah. There are ones that are marked 2 but don't have the auto film stop mechanism. And we think that was Argus's typical frugality of using up parts to make the cameras that, uh, uh, and there's one other that we know of that they actually made a geared focusing thing so that rather than the, the twist, twist the lenses uh, together and pinch your fingers when they come together, you got a knob on the side, but it was a relatively crude prototypical. Right, but that is cool camera. That's a, that was a really step forward. It's like a like an Argoflex that focuses like a Roli. It was a nice a nice camera. Only, only one existing. Only one known. Yeah, only one known. Yes, only one known. The other nice thing about those is the Argoflex 2 had a faster viewing lens. So some of yes. those reworked cameras. So I have I have one of those reworked cameras. They'll have a little chrome trim on the body. So you can tell it used to be an Argoflex 2, and that also yep. has the faster viewing line. So you get a little brighter viewing screen on those. Another interesting thing about that is that there's a there's a collector. Uh, he uh, was able to buy an f3.5 taking lens. So apparently Argus at one, and this was from, uh, Ilex was a company that made these lens film combinations for Argus at that time. Ilex made a prototype of, f, of an f3.5 taking lens in the shutter. And Ilex went out of business a while back and the, uh, the uh, inventory was purchased and distributed and part of it ended up on eBay and he was able to buy the F3.5 taking lens for this, uh, for this proto what would have been a prototype 
of the Argoflex Model 2. So either the Argoflex Model 2 was intended to have a 3.5 taking lens and a 3.5 viewing lens, or they abandoned that early on in the, in the production and then reverted to the f4.5 taking lens. And, and it was actually Wollensack that made the, the lenses and shutters. Yes, Wollensack, excuse me. Actually, uh, that sort of brought up a topic that I've always been curious about. Did Wollensack ever make a camera? I don't think so. They made they did, awesome lenses and shutters. They did make movie cameras during the period where the 3M company bought out Revere and Revere, I think, bought out Wollensack, whatever. They both companies ended up owned by uh, 3M for a while. And uh, they did release a stereo camera with the Wollensack name on it and was basically an yes. upmarket yes. version of the Revere camera. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Faster lenses. Yeah, yep, you're right about that. It's a variation of the, the, the Revere. But yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, we've talked about Soviet triplets, certain lenses that always seem to like overperform. And I found that if it's got a Wollensack lens on it, if you like TLRs, the Ciroflexes usually have Wollensack lenses on them. And yep. these things produce wonderful images. Mm -hmm. The Ciroflex was a very ambitious American TLR that sold for a fraction of the price of the Germans. Um, I, I mentioned earlier the Mercury's. The Mercury's almost always have a Wollensack lens on them. And I've, I've gotten fantastic images from these cameras. So, uh, yeah, that's a good question, Anthony, about why, you know, they never actually got into the, the, the world of making cameras, but they probably were so busy providing lenses and shutters to everybody else, like the Alfax and the Raypack shutters, um, and then just a huge number of lenses for all these other American cameras. It's also yep. possible that they just, wanted to be diplomatic with their customers. They didn't want to compete against the people who are buying their right. lenses and shutters. Yeah, I, that, that's very likely as well. The, the original 3.5 lens on the Mercury was a Wollensack, but then once you get the later 2.7s, those were made in-house by Universal. I see. Once right. they had their own optical shop. Yeah. Didn't they have a Hexar, but it's not a Konica? Isn't there? Yeah, a, they had an F20 Hexar. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Oh, Dan's got one. But that's not Japanese, though, right? That's still an American lens. Let me tell you a story about an F2 Hexar on a Mercury. I hate to turn off from Argus for a moment, but there's an there's an Argus collector who had a, a 1500 Mercury with the F2 Hexar and the uh, little rangefinder and the thumb advance. So it was the Mi Plus Ultra Mercury, pre-war Mercury, had everything. He collapsed uh, at home and for several days, it was thought to be on his deathbed, during which time his daughter cleaned out his house and sent the Univex Mercury to the dump. A moment of silence for that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> a moment of silence. So when he's talking about the 1500, the, the, normally the, the Mercury's had a, a shutter that only went up to 1 1,000th, and they wanted to compete with the contacts, right? The contacts had a top speed of 1 so Mercury said we could one up you and they put what a bigger spring in there and actually improve the shutter speed to one fifteen hundredth of a second. Yeah. And that's, but that's only on the early model though, the pre-war models. They didn't do that to the two. No, right? no, not after the war. Okay. Heard that they didn't use a different spring. They just cranked up the tension on it with a, you know, a few extra. Oh, really? Right. Okay. And as right. a result, they sometimes are known to self-destruct because they're really okay. I didn't. I thought the spring was different, but I guess that makes sense that they would just tighten it. The first instance of overclocking in American history. <laughs> yeah. So, so Dan, you held up a uh, Mercury one there. You have a one and a two. 
in your collection? Damn, you can't you can't hear Dan. While we're waiting for Dan, I'm disappearing, but I'm sitting here looking at my Mercury 2 with its Tricor 35 3.5, and it says right on the edge of the lens, made by Wollensack. Oh, yeah. There you go. All right. So I, there's, I was... There's some other Wollensack lenses out, out there that are not always marked. Like Ansco did not mark their Wollensack lenses. You know, they, they put their own Ansco name yeah. on them. Like I just picked up this camera today. And it's got a Wollensack 4.5 lens on it. It does have the little W in a circle, which Wollensack used to mark their coated okay. lenses for the war. So it's almost certainly it's it's made by Wollensack. Yeah. So the Mercury's, um, a lot of people like those because they have that rotary shutter. And I've always found them to be fun to shoot because when that shutter fires, it kind of torques the camera ever so slightly. It has a very distinct sound. But a question I've been asked multiple times by people, because one fault of them, like any old camera, is when the lubricants dry, you know, the camera usually stops working properly. And while this is not, you know, the, the prop, we've talked many times about the proper way to fix cameras. But if, if you have a Mercury and you wanted to shoot it one time and it doesn't work, um, you could literally submerge the whole thing in lighter fluid and loosen up all the dried up gunk and, and they will fire. These cameras are are so fun to shoot. Um, I like the earlier ones better, even though they don't use regular 35 millimeter film. The metal that they use for the body generally holds up a little bit yeah. better. The later Mercury's use a different alloy because the the supply of metals was a lot different after the war and they tend to oxidize a little bit more, but otherwise they work really, really well. Uh, the Mercury, a lot of people, I actually had somebody contact me that had multiple Mercury's and I talked about them having, you know, he said he wished that he could get one lens. Like he had the, the 2.7 on one, but it had a bad body, but he had a good one on a 3.5. I was like, man, I wish it was the other way around. I'm like, why don't you just switch them then? And like he he had these cameras and didn't even realize it's an interchangeable mount. And and he like I blew his mind when I said you could just unscrew the lens and, and swap them. So you know the Mercury has probably one of the smallest screw mounts I think I've ever seen on a 35 millimeter camera. You know, there's certainly other American cameras from this era that are worth collecting, you know, in addition to the Mercury's, which have a distinct style. Uh, one of my favorites that's actually an excellent user are the Clarises. I really, really like these Claris cameras. Um, they, unlike the Argus, have a focal plane shutter that now I've, I've only held a couple of them, but every Claris I've ever handled, the shutter still works. I don't know what it is that they did differently that even like, you, know, you can get a 50s Leica that has a shutter that's sluggish. And there's something about the Claris shutters or maybe they're just simpler and there's less to go wrong or something along the lines. But Claris is another one of these companies that used Wollensack lenses focal plane shutter. It's got the separate viewfinder rangefinder combination. The bodies are generally in good condition, but most of them do exhibit signs of some kind of oxidation. Wollensack lenses will make great pictures. So you find a Claris, it's a good looking camera. They're very, very solid. The shutters usually work pretty well. And if you're not a shooter and just want something to look good on a shelf, uh, they, they display very nicely. Clarises were made in Minnesota. Minneapolis, uh, Mike. Minneapolis, right. Made yeah, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And there's a there's a relatively unknown variant of the Claris, the Weston. Yep. Which is mm -hmm. a which is a Claris with a leaf shutter. Oh, really? A leaf shutter. Okay. Yep. I didn't know that. Yep. I knew about the, the variant. I didn't realize they changed the shutter. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, those uh, leaf shutter Leicas, you know, the same gotcha. you know, parallel kind of development. Those were like later then. 
right? Yes. Well, we I don't think we really know. I think Bob Kelly is the expert on these, isn't he, Phil? Yeah. Well, Scott Bellotta has been. Oh, yes, yeah, Scott Bellotta, right. I tr I tried to get Scott and Cindy on the show, but both of them were uh, busy right now. But yeah, I mean, there's so so much depth to American cameras. We haven't even talked about Perfects. Oh, there, Dan's Dan's got an FS. There you go. All right. There's the FS Argus. So it's got the switch that's immediately below the cocking lever. So for anybody listening to this, if you happen to see an Argus for sale anywhere with the switch that says FS below the cocking lever, and it's under $300, pick it up. It's highly desirable. But I like the Perfexes too. They had the 44, the 55, the Deluxe. The, Speed the Candid, Mike. The best one is the Speed Candid. The Speed Candid. I got one of those too. I will agree <laughs> best in terms of best to look. Yeah, these things are horrible to use. Jason Can Snyder it? called this camera an unspeakable abomination. <laughs> <laughs> it is It is a monster. I mean, um, I'm going to hold up. Here, I'll just hold up an Argus. And yeah. I mean, it's, I guess it doesn't show too much on the zoom, but it's, it's a lot bigger. There you go. But you can see the influence of the Argus model a and yeah. the, the perfect speed can uh, did learn from their mistake and their, their next yeah. camera was much better. Right. Well, these so when had you had a coupled range finder. Correct. Yeah. So the original one did not have a coupled range finder. Uh, there are actually versions of this camera that never had a range finder. Ira Cohen has one in his collection and you can tell that it's not simply a rangefinder model where the rangefinder was removed because I've seen it. it. It doesn't even have holes in the top plate oh. where the rangefinder would have been screwed in. So either it was a model that just was never finished, perhaps, or maybe they did offer a very small number of these without the rangefinder. But uh, we were talking about extinction meters. It has an extinction meter on the bottom. This also has a focal plane shutter and an interchangeable lens mount. Uh, one thing that I think is kind of interesting, I really wish we could have Scott on the show. He might know the answer to this. But when you look at the original Perfexes versus the later ones, the lenses are exact are actually the same with one difference. The uh, original model does not have a helix in the body, whereas the later ones do. So what they did was they took the lenses for the later models and there must be some kind of pin that seizes the focus from being able to turn because if you actually look at them they still have a scale on them whereas the uh, older ones don't so the two lenses are basically uh, the same one has a focusing helix one does not you can actually interchange them they do screw on to the wrong camera but you can't focus one versus the other but um both really really cool now the the perfects are made in ohio right uh, was it USA Cameron Chicago? Chicago, Chicago. It was Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Um, it relocated to Delaware, Ohio. The factory's still there. That's Ciro that was in Ohio. Ciro. Okay. I'm, okay. Reading, I'm reading and getting confused. No, no, that's I was confused too. I knew one of these companies was in Ohio. The, the lenses are are from Graph Optical, and I believe uh, that's in uh, in Indiana, if I'm not mistaken. The one on my oh. original Perfect says Graph Perfect yeah. and Astigmat. The other one it says Wolex, Wolex, or I'm sorry, Wolensack Perfects Velastigmat. Okay. So one oh. is a is, is a Wolensack. At some point in the 40s, the Argus company bought out Graph, and that's right. where Argus got into producing their own lenses. Yep, 1939, Eric. And in okay, fact, so if you look at to tie in the question of uh, that Mike brought up earlier about Argus Eyes, uh, they will every now and then Argus Eyes had an interview that was published uh, with a with an employee, preferably one that had been around for a long time, 
And I remember encountering one of these or reading one of these interviews and they said, well, uh, where, when did you start working in the optical industry? And this guy said, ah, I worked at Graph back in the late 1930s. And then I came over to Argus when Argus bought Graph. I've actually got a camera with a Graph lens on it here, uh, the Acromat. It's a Spartus. So is there a tie-in then to, uh, I'm assuming this is the Chicago manufacturing company that that produced like a thousands of different variants here. Is there a tie into Argus with that Chicago manufacturing company? You could do a whole episode rattling off the names of all the Chicago cluster cameras, but in terms of any history behind them, there's so little information. They were usually produced by like third parties of third parties. The the, the names of the cameras just kind of went crazy. And some, I, I recall reading somewhere, if you look at a lot of the like, Chicago companies, they have a body very similar to the Argus A, but there's no indication that Argus had anything to do with them. So I think that like they were just copying, they were American copies of American cameras and uh, it was very unscrupulous. So to answer your question, Theo, the answer probably is probably not, but maybe. <laughs> what do you got there, well, Dan? Graph supplied lenses to lots of the different companies before they were bought out. Like this is uh, this is the QRS camera. Um, okay. This has a graph lens. This was the upgraded focusing version um, of the lens because most of the QRS cameras have a fixed fixed focus. Going That's back cool. to the uh, Chicago connection for Theo and uh, Mike, in 1962, Argus was owned by GTE Sylvania, right? They were sold to Sylvania in 1957. GTE bought Sylvania in 1959. And in 1962, GTE decided they didn't want Argus anymore, and they sold it to Mansfield. And Mansfield was from Chicago. Oh, Argus was head. What remained of Argus was headquartered in Chicago for a very long time afterward. Well, I know um, one camera that came out of the Sylvania era was the Golden Shield, which was sold, if I remember correctly, through like jewelry stores. Right. This, This was the original bling. It has an all-metal foil <laughs> body with a literal golden shield for the logo. Yeah, they made like transistor radios like that and a few other right. kind of utilitarian things. They made typewriters under the golden shield name. All right, I got two more American 35-millimeter cameras. That uh, One is the Vokar. This yep. is a camera that is has what I consider to be one of the nicest looking body. It has almost like a streamliner, like a locomotive kind of look to it. Um, but they suck to use. Um, and I'll tell, I'll tell you why it's got these two knobs on the side. One of them is a film advance. One is the rewind and it looks nice. It looks like it's really easy to use, but the fatal flaw in this camera is there's absolutely no rewind mode on it. The way you remind the camera is simply just to turn the other knob. Like, so at any point in time, you could advance the film and you could rewind the film. And if you so much as bump the rewind knob while you're like going through a roll, you're going to start shifting your exposures all over the place, possibly overlapping each other. Um, the, the cameras did have an interesting shutter that I tried to take apart once before. And the shutter blades and the actual speed governor are two completely separate modules, which probably made sense, but they never work. Um, so finding these in working condition is very, very difficult. Um, I actually but... have a, a Vokar one that the shutter works flawlessly on. Really? Don't ever touch it. <laughs> <laughs> do you even, do you know what the difference is between a Vokar one and a Vokar two? 
I know there's a couple screws on the front on one that aren't on the other, but there's some minor internal differences as well. Is there? Okay. Because I always thought the difference between a Vocar 1 and a Vocar 2 is that one of them says Vocar and one of them says Vocar 2. Yeah, there's a couple <laughs> screws on the top that are on one and not the other, but there's there's internal differences in the mechanism. Yes, okay. I have a Vocar 1, and I've seen photos somewhere on some website that showed the internals of one, and there's some okay. definite differences between that and my camera. All right. Well, that's good to know. You know, there's a Vocar Model A and a Vocar Model B as well. Those, Those are, are folding cameras, right? Yeah, folding camera, Bakelite folding cameras. They were they predecessors they... of the Virgin. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. same body. It a lot like a Virgin. I had this out just in case somebody asked the question: Are there any Art Deco folding cameras made by a German company, but actually produced in the United States, that were also sold as Vocars? If anybody were to ask that question, I had the answer to it. So yeah. I got this one from Paul. Do you remember it, Paul? Yeah, I do remember that. Paul paid me. He paid me that, to take it. You know, it's the same body casting as those Vokar folders. Yes. Yeah. Nobody really knows if these were made by Vokar for Vergen or made for the like the U.S. importer. Like one of the Vergen brothers stayed behind in New York and became right, that's, an importer. Right. That's what happened. That's what happened. So, so I've, that's I've for done... that camera. But but he could have just bought the tooling and produced them himself. Right. Right. That's right. That's what happened. It's it's there were two brothers, Henry and Joseph Virgen, and they both came to the United States to escape the Nazis. One of them, I can't remember which of the two brothers stayed behind and tried to open up a US branch of Virgen. And this was one of the first cameras they released under the Virgen name, but it's 100 percent an American-made camera. They also made a matching extinction light meter that kind of matches that camera. It's it's this tiny little chrome thing about the size of a, a miniature max matchbox. Oh, really? Yeah, if you like um, Art Deco, it's got a lot of lines on it. And like Art, most of them, that front panel is often missing. The glue dries out. Uh, one more American camera. Okay, I know, Dan, you got a great flex up there. But a camera that I, I only learned of maybe two years ago. It's not a rangefinder, but it's called the WinPro. Oh, the yes. WinPro is an American camera. I won't cover it too in-depth here. You could just read my review of it on this site. I actually talked to the grandson of the guy who founded this company, and they had this whole connection with an airline. Uh, they were based out of Rochester, New York. So basically, almost every part of this camera was designed either by ex-Kodak employees or in cooperation with Kodak. The body is plastic, but it's made out of, it's not Bakelite. It's made out of something called Tenite, which is an early form of like injection molded plastic. And they did a gimmick when these things first came out because Bakelite is famously brittle. If you drop it, it'll crack. But these cameras, they would drop them outside of the window of their, their factory and they would show that they wouldn't break. I probably wouldn't do it now because I'm sure it's gotten brittle over time. But um, for as rudimentary of a camera as this is, it's very, very simple, mostly plastic. Uh, I have a later version, which has three different exposure settings. It's got an instant and a time setting, but um, actually makes really nice images. I, I, I was amazed at how good the images were on this camera. And it has, in my opinion, one of the neatest exposure counters on a simple camera. It's got a little disc on the back that as you advance film, as the sprockets turn, it spins this dial. And at each time it spins, when it gets back to where it started, the number under it is, is incremented. So like it, it'll say four and then it spins and now it says five and then it spins and now it says six. It's kind of, it's kind of neat. But um, if you're looking for cheap values in American cameras, 
and want to use them, I don't recommend the Volcar, but I do recommend the, uh, the WinPro. Uh, I do recommend the Perfex 55, but not the Perfex Speed Candid. And uh, I recommend the Argus C44 or the C4, but not the Argus C33. <laughs> now, what about the Argus 35 millimeter SLR camera? All right. Well, Mike uh, knows about that one. Well, there's a sequence of SLR cameras. The the 250 came out during the GTE Sylvania. That was made by Mamiya. And then later on, as uh, uh, GTE divested itself of Argus and Interphoto took over, there were a sequence of uh, SLR cameras made by Cosina. Let me see who is the other ones. Petri. Uh, Petri and Cosina. Uh, Cosina, Petri. And Mamiya and Chinon. That was the third one that I was trying to oh, think of. Chinon. Okay. Probably the probably the most interesting, the neatest, uh, the coolest camera is the is the first one, the uh, the Argus SLR made by Mamiya. It's a tank of a camera. It's beautifully made. Came with three lenses. Uh, it had I think a one four uh, fifty millimeter, uh, a one thirty five two eight, and a thirty five millimeter two eight. Very, looking, very, very nice camera. Yeah, I'm looking at one at the moment here, and yeah, it's priced as if it's a very nice camera, so it obviously uh, fits. But it's sitting here with an Argus Seiko lens, so to me, that means that's a Mamiya, Mamiya yeah. 58 millimeter, 1.7. Uh, yeah, 58. That's, that's, that's the right lens. So that was that basically is like a rebadged Mamiya Prismat. But one difference is it does have a, a unique bayonet mount that they made specifically for that camera. So although the bodies operate and work exactly the same as the same contemporary Prismats, you cannot swap the lenses. You you absolutely need that Argus C-Core lens to work on it. And like Mike said, they had a telephoto and a wide angle, which you loaned me for my review of it. The one I'm looking at too has a uh, metered selenium head as well. So yes. it's like it's, it's fully optioned. Yep, they made yeah, a CBS head as well for, for it. Now, the other thing about that camera is that isn't it comparable to the, or very similar to the original Nicromat, the first, first Nicromat? Isn't there some relationship there? The Nicro XF was pretty similar camera, except that had the Copal shutter in it. Ah, they yes. were they were so Mamiya made both cameras. They do share some similar DNA, but they are truly different models. You you could connect the dots between the Argus SLR and the Nicorex F because they both were made by Mamiya, but they're they're quite different cameras. But uh, they like if you look at the top plates, the Nicorex is much taller. You know, obviously the lens mount is different, but yeah, there there is a connection there. Mamiya made cameras for almost everybody back then. All right, so Dan's got looks like is that a Century thirty five. CA35. Oh, the CA. So that's the Ciro, right? Dubious being built by three different manufacturers. So <laughs> first by Perfex, then by Ciro, and then Ciro sold out to Graflex. So it's you'll find these were produced in relatively low numbers. Definitely. They used to go, if you, if you look at the McEwen's entry for that camera from years ago, McEwen listed for like two hundred to three hundred dollars, and uh, I think both the the supply has risen and the demand has declined a little bit. So you can get them a little bit cheaper, but they're still a rare camera. I've been looking for one, and I've had trouble finding one. So there's definitely not that many of them floating around. That's because I buy them all. Sorry, 
<laughs> this is serial number 93, the lowest number I found. Wow. wow. When, when that camera got bought out by Ciro and they started making them under their own name, there must have been a lot of unsold CA stock hanging around because you see them advertised in little ads in the back of photo magazines well up until about you know 1954 or so. So there must have been a lot of them hanging around that some of the dealers had they were trying to get rid of. I want to know more about the one Dan has in his hand because I think it's a pretty cool camera if I'm recognizing it. This is the Tourist Multiple, which was the first production 35 millimeter U.S. camera. 1912? Is that am I right? 1914, I think. 14. Okay, that was Got a close. Sliding lens board and everything. 1913. Uh, and who made who made the lens on that? Uh, this is a Zeiss. Yep. So it's got a Zeiss lens. Uh, there's a couple other cool features of that camera too. What do you want to well, rattle off real quick? So the the first 35 millimeter camera supposedly was made by a George Smith uh, from Missouri. The camera he only built the one, and uh, its whereabouts are currently unknown. It was last seen in the 1930s at uh, some sort of a trade fair, and it disappeared after that. So for someone who ha- who can't picture this, this, is a very large, almost like a like an extended. 35 millimeter camera. Um, it used a magazine that could allow up to 750. We would call them half frame today, but back then it was the standard 18 by 24 millimeters. So 750 images per roll. It's got a Zeiss. The lens board can rise and fall. So you could do perspective shots on it. It has a focal plane shutter. So it's not a uh, leaf shutter. 750 it, images per roll. It's heavy. It's, it's heavy. So think about it. That's an American-made camera from 1913 that can do all that stuff. You know, that's so much further ahead than anything else even that came after it, you know? So I've never seen one of those in person. Does yours work? Yes. Ooh. <laughs> I think I'm going to be going to Ohio pretty soon here. The theme of all these early cameras, this one and then the Simplex, which was the next production and the next full frame. This is not, you know, not full frame. It's movie aspect. And other cameras like the Ellison uh, is they all were sort of in mind of using up all the extra movie film from the movie industry. Short ends, right? Short ends, because Herbert and Hugen, who made the tourist, were, they sold film. Right. Uh, and. Uh, so they came up with the idea, and almost all of these companies, the QRS, the Tourist, the Simplex, all had a projector because their idea was that you were going to project the images. And this actually, this is the only one I've ever seen. This is the DeVry or QRS, uh, which is just a body. There is no shutter uh, or anything in here. It's just designed to be a projector. It's got a little oh, camera wow. fits in with a light source. Uh, which was die cast and too heavy to drag out here. Develop as a like a reversal film and then just project it. Right. Okay. Wow. Uh, and then also the Ansco Memo, uh, also they had a projector. So yeah. all the early ones, they were thinking in terms of, of it being proje- a projected image, not a printed image. I'm glad I you brought up the like- Ansco me- Memo because that's one of my favorite early American cameras. These were from the 20s. And 35 millimeter, it's much smaller than the tourist multiple, but it has a gloriously large and bright viewfinder. Uh, it uses a film system, which is very similar to the later Agfa Carat cassettes, where or the rapid cassettes. Right, Dan's showing a picture of it. So you have two <laughs> hollow spools 
this one's been modded to take 35 millimeter. Oh, really? Okay. Well, mine is not modded, but you can just, as, as long as you can get two cassettes for it, uh, you can just feed in bulk 35 millimeter film and shoot these cameras. And uh, surprise, surprise, it's got a Wollensack lens. It's got a very, very cool exposure meter on top. And it's, it's small. I mean, it's, let's, I'm going to use Argus as the benchmark again. So you can see it's actually smaller than the Argus, a little bit thicker, but a bright viewfinder, it's scale focus. You can get them. I think Zeiss, there were options with Zeiss lenses. Mine has the Wollensack lens. Uh, very, very beautiful. Displays well. These usually can still be found. Like the tourist multiple is unobtainium. To find those online for sale, other than the ones Dan has all bought. Are hard to find, but you can still find these Ansco memos for under a hundred bucks, and they're excellent shooters. They're very, very simple, so very, very little to go wrong. There's a high probability if you find one in nice shape, they probably work. And again, it's 35 millimeter film. the The key is to get ones with either the two cassettes or figure out how how they get modified to use regular 35 millimeter. And here, that's here's a, one you won't find for under a hundred bucks. It's the original one that's wood. Yeah, finished wood. And the wood was yeah. Pretty. It's try grab one of those if you ever get a chance. Yeah. Mine's the got the leather covered. I think it's still wood though, but yours is like a polished wood with brass, I think, isn't it? Brass uh accessories. So those are pretty have you ever shot that, Phil? Oh uh, no, no. No, okay. A Boy Scout version two and tacky or olive grip drab. One of the strange features on that camera is the film counter is driven by the shutter release. So it counts how many times you've pressed the shutter. It's not linked to the film line. Yeah, that's true. You're right. Yep. As I'm sitting here firing the shutter and the numbers are, they you can hear it here. The, you just have to trust me on it. The exposure counter moves each time I press the shutter. So that's a good, good point. And then AGFA, I don't have it handy. There's actually an AGFA memo, which looks completely different, but it's made in the United States by AGFA and it uses the ANSCO memo cassettes. But then they also have the Agfa Carat, which use cassettes, which are very similar to the memo cassettes using a feed, but those are made in Germany. So the Carat's German, the Ansco memo, the Agfa memo, and Anthony, you have the Rico memo, right? No, he does. He, he does. We were talking. There was a, a memo too in the 60s, which was actually made by Riken uh, in Japan. All right, we're starting to run short on time here. I kind of want to wrap it up. If, if anybody has any questions, uh, we really didn't get a chance to cover um, some of the stereo cameras. Uh, I had, we talked about the Revere really quick. Um, another super cool stereo camera is the Viewmaster stereo cameras. Theo, what do you have there, Theo? I've got a Polaroid SX70. So we yes. didn't even touch on Polaroid. <laughs> and uh, it's probably just as well because that's, a, that's another rabbit yeah. hole. It'll take a few hours. We haven't talked about the Bullsies, the Jubilees. Um, I really, really like the Bullsies because this is kind of like the Argus's in that it's an American-made camera, but with it, this one has a German lens. This has a Bullsey Steinheil. The earlier B2s have a regular Bullsey lens. Uh, um, Dan's got the, was that interchangeable lens, Bullsey? Yeah, interchangeable lens. Interchangeable lens. It just pops out and you use extension tubes on it. Yeah. We haven't covered the Falcons. Uh, we haven't covered, um, I, you know, I know, um, I think, Greg, you said that you're a, a naval photographer. This isn't, doesn't quite qualify, but there was a whole series of gun cameras that were made for, for military use. This uses um, uh, film cassettes. I have one surprise, of them. Surprise, surprise, who makes the lens? Wollensack. <laughs> Wollensack. 
How about how about this American made? Oh yeah. Oh, there you go. The combat That's reflex. Nice. That's nice. See, I just picked up. This is a whole. I got the whole kit with all three lenses. Wow. wow. I think so I don't think it's ever been used. It still had the uh, original military issue tag on it. Sorry, I'm not familiar hey. with that. What, what is? Can we can we expand on that? Does a that bit? take Let's... seventy millimeter? Yeah, seventy millimeter cassettes. Well, it was it was designed by Graphex for the military. I think for the army initially. <laughs> um, of course, the Navy ended up with them because it was on a government contract. And I, what I was told by a lot of the guys in my organization is, is that they were used for v during Vietnam primarily. I mean, it's just like a, it's a 35 millimeter on steroids. It's huge and you can drive nails with it. So, you know, it was a government contract and they, they made thousands of them, I'm sure. And like, I've got the whole kit. I've still got it in the case and everything. We used them in the Navy. Some guys that I've talked to back that were in Vietnam used. Greg, is that a KE-7A? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think okay. that's the, the, right. the official military term for it. Yeah, I, I've shot with those actually, and that that is a that's just a great camera. Though the seventy millimeter is a little funky, uh, but I mean I understand the whole reason for it. But wasn't that designed by the same guy who did the contacts? Hubert uh, Nerwin camera. Yeah, I believe it was. I think you're right. He because oh, he after, <laughs> after after Nerwin left uh, Zeiss, he moved to America and worked for the rest of his career for Grayflex. I don't know what role he played in designing that camera, but I can almost guarantee you he had some kind of uh, say in it. So uh, that would be a good crossover from last episode's contacts discussion to this episode. And amazingly, this was already planned. Paul, what are we going to talk about in the next episode? Yeah, so next week, next episode, we're going to go down the uh, the the Graflex uh, rabbit hole, which is going to really be a real problem, I think, for everybody because there are so many models. It makes Argus look, yeah. look simple. We're going to have John Minnick, who's going to show his uh, his handmade camera that uses the Aero Ektar lens that David Burnett has been shooting with during the congressional hearings. Greg, please you know, come back next next time. Yeah, because <laughs> you know we used a lot of Graflex cameras in the military. <laughs> well, you, the Navy, the, the actually the Graflex XL was uh, a Navy camera. Whenever they they kept trying to discontinue it, and when they would try to discontinue it, the Navy would order more. Yeah, that, that sounds like the Navy. You know, when I, I joined the Navy in 1985, and they just two years before they had quit using the uh, Graphex press camera as yep. the basic camera to use in a school. Yep, well, the, the Air Force did the same thing. They they hung on as long as they possibly could. That's a really really neat camera, and like, how heavy is it? Can you compare it to like maybe a, a watermelon? <laughs> I, I would say it probably weighs a good five pounds. Five pounds. Five pounds. Yeah. It's not light. So it's I like mean, a yeah. child's bowling ball, maybe a yeah. medium-sized watermelon. And, and you know, this is this is with the small lens and no flash. The flash. Yeah. What do you got there, Eric? It's like a graphics. <laughs> military Graflex XL. This has the 80 millimeter planar on it. So this is an excellent segue into our next episode. Uh, we will probably spend a great deal of time on four by five. Greg, you know, I, I'm really happy to see you on the show. Uh, you know, I, you didn't get a chance to talk too much, so hopefully you learned a lot. Phil and Mike, uh, this has been amazingly fascinating to have you on the show. Um, I wanted to talk about Argus. I know a lot of people don't 
give the American cameras the respect that, you know, I think that they should have. That's not to say that these cameras are, you know, should take the place of a Zeiss contacts or a Nikon SLR or whatever. Uh, but if, but if anybody listening to this episode, maybe only thought there were Argus and Kodaks, let's just say, you know, there's so much to explore. There's so many really cool cameras. Many American cameras did not follow that same, hey, let's make everything look like a Leica, except for the Cardin, which we really didn't get a chance to cover. Uh, there's this, the, the Graflex 35 millimeter cameras. I have the one that's powered by a CO2 cartridge, uh, which is, it's a Japanese camera technically, but sold by Grayflex in the United States. It uh, looks like Eric has a card in there. Uh, yep. That's the, the American, like it's the military card and it's got the yep, bigger the military. Um, and, and real quick, I'll, I'll comment on that. I mentioned this in my review that wine knob actually makes the camera a joy to use. That's one. Yeah, I really like this better. I have a, like a three, a that was similar otherwise, but the, yeah. the larger diameter is nice. And then you don't have to worry about bumping the film counter. either. Right. If I were to make what I think is the perfect screw mount Barnack like a copy, I would take the Canon's prism that rotates for the different focal lengths. I'd give it the military Cardin's larger diameter wheel. I also like how it has the precision focus wheel. You know, if you're using gloves, it would probably make it easier to use, but maybe not necessarily a, um, a requirement. But then I'd add the Nika, which had the M3 style flap in the back so that it makes film loading. So my perfect Leica would be the Cardin dial, the Nika door, and the Canon rotating prism in the viewfinder, but that's uh, for another episode. He's interested in in the uh, a really good book about the American 35 millimeter camera. It's it's a book called Glass, Brass, and Chrome: The History of the American 35 millimeter Camera by yeah. Calton LaHue and Joseph Bailey, and uh, it's it's filled with factual inaccuracies, but it captures the spirit of the era and has got a lot of great pictures. Well, it's from the 70s, right? So, I mean, we've learned a lot more, yeah, since then. Dan, you have a copy of that too, don't you? Yeah, that's that's a good one. I, I don't own one, but I've seen seen it before enough to be able to get stuff in there. So does anybody else have anything else they want to ask or share before we go? Uh, Mike, when are you going to do the Fotron? Oh, boy, yeah, we really didn't get into Bell and Howell. Um, yeah, I've, no, I've I mean, that. I mean the big plastic monster oh. camera about the size of uh, Greg's uh, Navy camera. <laughs> about the that size was- of watermelon yeah and it takes a 120 little uh proprietary 126 type cartridge it's actually 828 it's kodak 828 828, but it's in a proprietary cassette it makes one inch by one inch images on a camera almost the size of that combat reflex right um yeah that was a disaster they sold it in mind I've reviewed it actually on my site. I have a review. Oh, um, I was never able to get one that worked. I have three of them. I, the furthest I was able to get is I got one that the charge light would light up because it has a rechargeable battery inside of it. Um, yeah. And I was able to get the shutter to start winding, but I could never get it to fire. I'm yeah. sorry, the film advance would wind, but I could never get the shutter to fire. But uh, in my true. review, I actually found another website where someone actually had scanned in some real shots from one just to give an idea what it could do. But that thing's a disaster. There's a photochrome. See, we're supposed to be getting people to like American cameras. We don't want to end the episode with the worst ones ever made, but (laughs) I guess since we're here, you got the photochrome too. Uh, The, um, (laughs) the Fotron, there's the Bell and Howell Photon. Photon, that's something else. 
That's a very innovative camera. I reviewed that. I actually got to shoot one of those. That was a loaner. I don't have one in my permanent collection. But, you know, once again, the world of American cameras, I think, is a lot bigger than a lot of people give them credit for. If you're into Argus, there's a ton of great options to choose from. There's a lot of variants. There's the, the gold and ivory one. You have the C44s. You have the Vocars. You have the Clarises, the Perfects, the Win Pros, uh, the Ciroflex TLRs. You know, we, we talked about the ANSCO. Uh, I don't know where I put it the, here. The ANSCO automatic reflex TLR, which is really nice. Uh, there's the Cardons, which are top of the line. You you know, I'm a huge fan of the Kodak Extra, but I said we wouldn't talk too much about Kodaks. Go online, buy an American camera. If you're listening to this episode after you're done, uh, share with us what some of your favorites are. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about Grayflex and 4x5. As always, the topics and discussions on the Camerosity podcast are influenced by you. Uh, we would love getting the feedback. We love hearing stories like Greg shared earlier about going through and re-listening to all the past episodes. If there's something we get wrong, let us know. Uh, I have no problem admitting when I get something wrong. In fact, actually real quick, errata from last episode, I mentioned how the Kodak Retina, the question was if there's one kind of camera you could get fixed, what would it be? And Anthony brought up Kodak Bellows. And I made a comment about how uh, most Kodak cameras of that era use like a paper or cloth bellows. And I made the comment that retinas use a leather bellows, but I was corrected that the retinas bellows actually aren't made of leather. They are still a synthetic material, just for whatever reason, a better synthetic material. So maybe we'll get somebody on the show who knows a lot about retinas and repairs them. Uh, but we're definitely going to talk about gray flex in the next episode. So uh, until then, we'll see you guys. And thanks, everybody, for coming on the show. Good night. Good night, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye, then. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pat and Eric. Dan. heavily edit these after they're done so if you need to like have a long pause to like gather your thoughts or let's say you don't know the answer to a question and need to think about it and then come up with the answer later i'll get rid of all the pauses so um if you start to trail off on a topic which i i've been known to do quite a number of times that doesn't go anywhere and you're like you know what just cut this part out that's fine too uh, nobody wants anybody to sound like, you know, weird <laughs> in the final version. I do a pretty good job of, uh, shortening things up. So if, like I said, if there's anything that you're like, you know what, Mike, can you just remove that part? Just say so. On occasion, I'll screw up and you'll just hear me say the same thing twice. That's because I'll edit my own mistakes out. On occasion, I'll screw up and you'll just hear me say the same thing twice. That's because I'll edit my own mistakes out.